I just really thought Elixir was a beautiful programming language, so. He's explained an incredibly complicated topic in about 20 words, if you can. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Beam Radio. I am Sophie De Benedetto, and I am joined today by two of my fabulous co-hosts. We've got Bruce Tate. Welcome, Bruce. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we've got Steven Nunez. Hi there. Hello. We also have a very special guest that I am very excited to chat with today. I'm going to introduce our guest in just a moment. Uh, first things first, I would love to give a shout out to our sponsors. We've got Graxio, which as you guys know by now is career fuel for programmers. And we'll hear a word from that particular sponsor when we wrap up today. And then we also want to say a thank you to Underyard, uh, who supports us in getting this podcast out as often as we do. Okay, so I think without much further ado, uh, I am very excited to introduce Sean Moriarty, and you may know him as the creator, co-creator of Axon, very involved with NX, the Elixir uh, ML library. He is an author through Pragmatic Bookshelf. He's got a book out called uh, Genetic Algorithms in Elixir. It's a great title that I definitely recommend checking out. And something else in the works, I think, book-wise, as well as a number of other projects that he'll be prepared to talk with us about. So, Sean, welcome. Great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the you guys putting this together. Excited to talk. Oh, we are so glad that you could join us. Uh, we've got so many questions for you about a couple of the things that I just mentioned and many, many more. But what we love to do with our guests when they first come on is just give you a moment to introduce yourself. And in particular, tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days and how you got involved in Elixir programming in the first place. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Sean Moriarty. I'm 25 years old. I'm originally from a suburb of uh, Philadelphia, so Pennsylvania. I'm actually wearing my Sixers gear right now. I'm a huge Philadelphia sports fan, so um, I guess a little bit about me personally. Um, I got interested in programming when I was pretty young, so I think I got my first computer when I was 12 or 13. Um, I started out with just like websites and stuff um mainly through like like i was a pretty big gamer when i was in middle school i don't really game at all now um and i think that kind of like segued into to me teaching myself how to program um started out with php which is a surprising language for for someone to learn first but maybe not as surprising as this one might think um and then i got really interested in functional programming probably when i got to school so uh, at the college I went to, they they taught Scala was was the language, so it's it's a it's a JVM language, but it's got sort of like some functional aspects, some object oriented aspects. It's a pretty interesting language. I really liked Scala, but um, I wouldn't say that I loved it. And then I actually ended up finding Elixir uh, through a Quora answer because I used to be a very religious Quora reader, um, and someone was asking like, what is the best programming language for web development and X Y Z? And someone was evangelizing Elixir, so. I thought, why not check it out? I fell in love with it. I like really, really enjoyed the language. I did not necessarily get too deep into Phoenix because at that point I'd had pretty much given up on on web development altogether. Like I really realized it wasn't for me. Um, I've kind of gotten back into it more recently, but uh, it wasn't one of the things I was interested in. I just really thought Elixir was a beautiful programming language. So I got very interested in it. And then I've been learning it now probably for like five, ish years 
the first few years I was pretty passive. I wasn't very involved in the community and then uh, I ended up writing the book and then I got very involved with the open source community after that. So that's my Elixir story. So I didn't really hear anything about an object-oriented language. I mean, straight from something like PHP, straight into the functional languages. How was that transition? Um, I, it was pretty natural, I think. Like I, I ended up, I took a, a, an AP computer science class when I was in high school. So I learned a little bit of Java, but I never got too deep into it. Um, I would say that I wasn't very like poisoned with, uh, with, with an object-oriented mindset, which kind of helped teach myself Elixir. Um, there were definitely some things that like were a little bit slower for me to learn. Um, but for the most part, it was a pretty smooth transition for me. We'll get to the questions a little bit later, but Python is a big machine learning language and, and maybe even the central one, even with its lack of, of ability in the numerical computing space. Um, so missing that, do you, do you read a little Python? Do you dabble in it or are you pretty good with Python by now? Yeah, I would say I'm pretty good with Python by now. Um, so I, I started getting involved in machine learning. My would have been my senior year of college. So I'm, I, I'm, I would say relatively new to machine learning as well compared to uh, you know other people out there in, in the ecosystem. Um, I got involved in machine learning my senior year of college. I took a class on deep learning, um, and I kind of just fell in love with it. And that lined up right with all of the COVID lockdowns. And so I like. I got very obsessed is, is I would, what I would say, unhealthily obsessed. Um, and I would sit in my room and I would literally just read books. Like I probably read through like three or four textbooks on machine learning. Um, I would just sit there and read like the TensorFlow source code because I'm one of the people that I, I get really interested in how things work. And so I kind of like went off the deep end a little bit and, and dove very far into machine learning. Um, and that's where a lot of my knowledge comes from. Um, I would say I'm better at reading Python than I am at actually writing Python. Like I'm not a very good, I don't, I really have no idea how to structure a Python project, but I can dive into some Python source code and, and sort of reverse engineer, which has kind of been a lot of the job working on NX is, is going and seeing how a lot of the algorithms are implemented in Python and then seeing how we can translate them over to NX. Yeah, so let's fast forward a little bit to a point where you wrote a book uh, on genetic algorithms uh, using Elixir. How did that come about? I wouldn't necessarily have put those two together at that time. Yeah, so that came about, well, I got pretty interested in evolutionary algorithms uh, early on in, in, in college. So um, I have a lot of friends that, that like sports betting um, and I like sports betting too. I don't really do it actively, but um, I'm just interested in more of like the, the gamification behind it. Um, and I started reading papers about portfolio optimization, which is, if you think about it, it's very similar to sports betting. So like when you're betting on games, you're choosing the you know, optimal members of your portfolio, basically. Um, and I had read something that you could use genetic algorithms to, to pick an optimal portfolio. Um, and so I got kind of interested in that and everything was in Python. But at the time I was teaching myself Elixir. So I was like, well, it'd be cool if I could write something to marry these topics together. And so I ended up writing a framework called uh, GenX, which is a very interesting name. I, I think all of my all of my naming schemes in the Elixir ecosystem follow the same pattern with with the X, and I, I'm probably not alone in that that paradigm. Um, I ended up writing this library. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, so I wrote a um, email to Dave Rankin at uh, 
pragmatic programmers pragmatic bookshelf um and i was like hey i would really like to write about this topic uh would you guys be interested in taking a proposal and he i honestly have him to thank for a lot of my success because he really like walked me through the whole process and somehow miraculously got this this book approved for writing um by the the, the board which was Honestly, I thought like when I first wrote to him, it was really a long shot, but I think we went back and forth like four or five times with him helping me refine the idea to something that he thought that would end up getting sold. And so um, I really have him to thank for for a lot of what happened after that book got published, because without him, it really would have never been published in the first place. Um, and then I ended up writing the book and the rest, as they say, is history. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So, so now you've written a, a book with with a functional language, which is kind of, some people say is the antithesis of what you want for a numerical processing um, application, right? And also Elixir, which has which has some, some typing issues and also some issues for computational speed. Um, but Jose saw your book and got really excited. So, so walk me through what happened next. Yeah, so the day the book was published, I ended up getting an email from Brian Carterella at Dockyard um, <clears throat> asking me if I was interested in working on machine learning and ecosystem. He said Jose was kind of looking for it as the as the next frontier for, for Elixir and trying to find people that he could support to, to push that project forward. Um, so he got me in touch with Jose, and then we went back and forth on trying to figure out what a good approach to solving the problem was. Um, and I think initially some of the initial ideas were, well, can we just like write bindings to, you know, a TensorFlow, you know, like the C++ library for TensorFlow, or can we just write bindings to PyTorch? Um, and very early on, this idea was kind of dismissed and someone actually ended up recommending to us to check out uh, XLA, which is a library from Google called uh, Accelerated Linear Algebra. It's just a, it's a, it's a machine learning compiler basically. Um, and I had actually worked in JAX before, which is the library that is like one of the, the most popular front ends for XLA. Um, so I was somewhat familiar with it. We ended up diving into that. And early on, like some of our initial uh, challenges were trying to get like XLA to actually build on the beam. I think some of the people who remember the early iterations of EXLA and NX, it took like four hours for it to compile on your computer. Um, and we were dealing with all of that stuff very, very early on. Um, then we finally kind of, you know, I think we we got over the hump a little bit with with some of this stuff. I don't think initially we thought it was going to be as successful as it was. Uh, we had a lot of really like problems, I would say, early on that to me, it almost seemed like, well, there's no way we're ever going to get over any of these challenges. Um, somehow we did. And now, I guess, two years later, uh, we have a very, I would say, thriving young ecosystem. Um, very excited about what the future holds. So, so wait a minute. You said that that the approach was basically to rip out the numeric side of of a core language that already existed, the type system, everything, rip that out, kind of replace it. And by the way, you put in hooks for a compiler to kind of work back and forth. And you're also saying that all of this worked. That's right. Yeah, it was very, uh, like I said, it was a little fragile early on. So. Um, I think when I first started, I was still like a, a very young, immature programmer that depended on Stack Overflow for uh, a lot of my work. Um, and and <laughs> uh, 
at the time, there was really no, like, I couldn't just Google how to build XLA for another language. <laughs> like, there was a lot of things that you just kind of had to figure out on your own. It was almost like the Wild West, too, where, like, we were on, uh, there's, a, there's an XLA Google group um, that Jose and I would just go on and ask, like, random questions because none of the stuff is really documented very well. Um, and then we'd kind of be, like, frantically emailing like anyone we could find at Google who could maybe walk us through. And there were a lot of people that were really kind to us early on and, and helped us out a lot. Um, but at the time there was really no documentation on, on how to build all this stuff, how to use all this stuff. And so it really was us just like sitting there reading the source codes. How does this work? I was teaching myself C++ at the time because XLA and TensorFlow are built in majority C++. So I was like, reading a C++ book while I was trying to read the source code. And so it was a little bit of, uh, of a, a mad sprint to try to get all this stuff to work. Um, and fortunately, it didn't end up working. I'm a little upset now. The uh, XLA project is actually now getting moved over to OpenXLA, which is going to be like a very well-documented uh, compiler machine learning project. And I don't want to say we had anything to do with that because we definitely didn't because there's a lot of other uh, bigger companies out there that are uh, evangelizing XLA and trying to get, you know, use it in, in other ways that are not tied to Python. But um, yeah, it would have been a lot easier to, to get this going uh, before or after the X open XLA project started. So. So I think that we're all kind of trying to catch our breath here. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty intense story, right? So we've talked a little bit about NX. So let's talk about the axon layer. So, and this is different from a traditional program. A traditional program, you basically, you take a problem and then you solve it step by step. But machine learning, you build more of a generic program and then you teach it to do something. <laughs> and and how does that, how does that work in something like Axon? Yeah, so um, yeah, machine learning differs a lot from like a traditional style of programming where you're building like logic explicitly into your, your application. So um, and actually like early artificial intelligence was built a lot on that sort of uh, assumption that you could just encode like a set of, of rules to, to identify everything. And there's still an ongoing project. Um, I can't, I don't remember the name of it, but there's an ongoing project where they're like basically trying to encode all of, of human understanding and knowledge into like some sort of knowledge tree or, or logical representation. Um, and people that are familiar with Prolog, Prolog was like one of the earliest uh, artificial intelligence programming languages out there, uh, very logic-based. I think the, the paradigm is called expert systems. So, you know, can I identify uh, the set of rules that, that identify every object out there or, or how, you know, the English language works. Like if you think about English, there's a, a ton of like well-structured rules, but, but as any, you know, uh, English is a second language speaker, like there's a ton of exceptions to those rules. English is a very complex language. So it's really, really difficult to encode all of the rules of the English language in a set of formal logic. Um, and then if you think about something like images, for example, like it's really difficult for me to sit here and describe the set of rules that you know, make up the image of, of a golden retriever was the example I used in my, uh, my, my talk for ElixirConf. Um, so, you know, it's really difficult to solve some seemingly simple problems with formal logic. So machine learning kind of extends that to, to something uh, where you're dealing with probabilities or uncertainties. And you basically, you, you have functions. Um, these functions have parameters and they, they do some linear algebra. Um, and they spit out probabilities or they, they spit out uncertainties, basically. 
uh, where you say, hey, I think this image might be a, uh, a dog, or I think this image might be a cat um, with some probability, but I'm not exactly sure. Uh, and then you kind of make decisions based off those. So it's a, it's a very different way of programming than people might be used to because there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that have seen some of the chat GPT failures out there where it just like goes off the rails completely. Um, and that happens. And that's one of the, the things that, you know, is, is interesting about machine learning is you have to deal with those problems. Yeah, Axon is, is a library for doing deep learning in Elixir. So uh, deep learning and machine learning are related. Deep learning is really a subset of machine learning. Um, machine learning as a field is huge. Like there is a ton of topics in machine learning. There's a ton of different algorithms out there. Um, you could spend your entire career learning about uh, one portion of machine learning that has nothing to do with deep learning um, just because of how, how vast the field is. So deep learning is just one strategy for performing machine learning based on neural networks, which are really just large functions uh, with a ton of parameters. Some of the larger models out there now have something like in the hundreds of billions of parameters, like uh, GPT-3 famously has like 176 billion parameters. Um, so Axon is kind of a higher level library built on top of NX for doing deep learning in Elixir. Um, in the ecosystem, we also have Scholar, which is a relatively new library for doing more traditional style machine learning. Yes, that's pretty cool. So one of the things that I like about the way that you've structured Axon is that it really takes advantage of the Elixir kind of abstractions, you know, the 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 piping and and um, kind of the the wrap, wrappers with blocks, and you know, it's it's a it's a pure functional solution. So it seems like we're starting to get some of the advantages with. Of, of Python that it's that is easy to understand, but also the advantages of a more functional language where it's easy to kind of think in terms of transformations. Yeah, and I honestly have uh, Jose to think thank for a lot of the the design of Axon. So early on, um, I was trying to build Axon uh, in a very metaprogramming style with like a DSL and um, have everything be very like. I would say uh, bespoke or or uh, specific to like Elixir, and he kind of advised against uh, going the metaprogramming route and just to to make everything as simple, uh, functional as possible. And I think that was uh, very good advice because it helped simplify the library and the library development a lot. So a lot of the early design decisions for that were you know critical to how Axon ended up coming about. Uh, Jose is to thank for those. So things have started to pick up speed, and and was was this just getting the abstractions right, or is there something else going on behind the scenes? Yeah, so a lot of the early uh, work on NX and Axon. Um, well, first there there's 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 two things to look at. So NX early on, uh, I think there was a few rewrites of the library very very early on, and there's also been a ton of rewrites of the automatic differentiation system in NX. So NX implements uh, autograd basically, which is just a way of doing calculus uh, automatically within your program um, built on transformations of expressions. Um, it's, it's very, very challenging to get right. And, uh, you know, you can't just Google how to implement. I mean, there's a lot of tutorials out there now, but you can't just really Google how to implement autograd and Elixir. So we made a lot of mistakes. And um, I think Jose ended up writing rewriting NX's automatic differentiation system probably like six times uh, before we eventually got it right. 
because uh, there's a lot of pitfalls and a lot of mistakes you can make. Um, there were also some some things we had to, to change about the NX library early on to make it a little bit more flexible. So the, I guess, timeline of how everything worked was really everything started with the XLA. Um, and could we build, uh, you know, XLA programs, XLA graphs inside of the beam? And could we get that to run quickly? Um, and then NX sort of started to build. Um, and as we were building NX, we thought, well, we need something to like flex the, the power of, uh, of NX. So Axon came about next to really see like, okay, how mature is NX? And, and that kind of cascaded with, uh, you know, the development between the two of those. So when we found a shortcoming in NX because of Axon, we would go ahead and go back and fix NX. And then um, we would try to build more more uh, powerful or expressive neural networks. And that would usually help us find a shortcoming in NX. And so that would that would adjust our thinking and how we were designing the library. Awesome. So I had a question. So I, big fan of Elixir, as you can tell, by us all being here. Um, one thing that I, I see that draws, that's a big draw for getting into the machine learning space as an Elixirist is Bumblebee, right? Bumblebee and sort of like going down to Axon, down to NX. Um, where do you think there's the biggest opportunity for folks running, say, Phoenix in production now to integrate machine learning, um, I guess, into their applications? What have you seen? Um, and what, are you, what have you not seen, but you hope you see soon? Yeah, so I've seen actually a lot of people very excited to uh, adopt uh, Elixir in their, their machine learning workflows. They, a lot of people have an existing, say, Phoenix application, and they want to, to build some uh, machine learning into it, or they already have machine learning built into their application, but it's wrapped behind some Python microservice, and they want to blow that microservice away. Um, and so with libraries like Bumblebee, you can actually make use of pre-trained models from the Python ecosystem. You can even train a model, say, in PyTorch or something else, serialize it, and then load it into Bumblebee and have it running directly in your Elixir application and not have to worry about you know, having a, a separate service. So it kind of unifies the, the experience there a little bit. I have seen companies that are, are making the switch over to using Bumblebee. I'm helping some companies and, and I have hopefully have some, some things to write about and some things to talk about uh, in a few months with that. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people are seeing the, the benefits to, to sort of unifying the stack a little bit. You get to blow away a microservice. You get all of the, the benefits of working in Elixir, fault tolerance. Um, the serving abstraction we have is built with like distribution just baked in. So if you have a clustered application, you can run your serving across multiple nodes and it just works magically. Um, so there's a lot of advantages of sort of like unifying the stack there. Um, I also talked to Frank uh, from the NERVS project for, you know, a little bit now where he's very interested in seeing how we can get the embedded machine learning ecosystem moving forward. So um, I think that's a pretty interesting opportunity for people to be able to work from, you know, the full stack embedded uh, up to, to server grade deployments and use the same frameworks and, and you know, the same tools. Um, and I also think there's potential too with the LiveView native project to be able to uh, write, I would say, applications that can be deployed on a desktop or mobile device, as well as on, on you know, a website, and then um, also write machine learning tooling for those applications without having to switch, you know, to Python or some other framework. 
Um, so I think there's a lot of potential. There's also some pitfalls we have in the community still that we're still trying to, to work out, but um, I think there's a lot of things that are very promising about the direction we're going. It's all coming together. It's all happening. Um, I do think exactly. that this project has this project and this this space has a big opportunity to be glue um, uh, and have a big impact on what we're building and and the fact that we're using a lot of the OTP abstractions and that we're using again making things uh, elixiry and functional um, is a, a big part of that because if you can transition a web developer to understand enough Bumblebee to build something that adds significant value to an application, uh, that's huge. Um, the same way Nerves had a big impact on allowing web developers to start thinking about, well, how can we actually transition into hardware? Um, it's no coincidence that you have sort of the teaching contingency of Beam Radio here. Uh, but so one thing that I think a lot about is what is the on-ramp for a big dumb web developer like me to kind of transition into this space, I could ask you for a, you know, a laundry list of the books that you've read. I could go learn C++ real quick and then start reading through the TensorFlow. Um, but if you could, starting today, um, what, what would that path look like to get you to competent? And then kind of like a follow-up question for everyone else, thinking about that, what's the path to enticement? I mean, like, how do we sort of like make it so that there's a, a gradual progression from maybe it's Bumblebee to then Axon to then more deep NX. But I want to hear from you, Sean. Yeah, so at this point, there obviously uh, aren't very many, many materials out there for working with NX and Axon and Bumblebee, but I'm hoping to change that. So I do have a, a book uh, coming out. Um, hopefully by the time this podcast is out, it's already out, um, called Machine Learning and Elixir. Uh, where I kind of walk through the basics of machine learning, the foundations of machine learning in NX, um, getting into Scholar a little bit, which is a traditional machine learning library, uh, and then spending a lot of time with Axon and Bumblebee. Um, and then there are some uh, applications in there where we actually wrap all of this machine learning up into a little Phoenix application um, and, and build something pretty cool. So uh, I'm, I would say that is, is where I would start. Um, on top of that, you know, I have a ton of blog posts in the Elixir community. I write a lot for Dockyard. I write a lot for my own personal blog. Um, I don't know necessarily know if my uh, blog posts are, are in any, any particular order for a machine learning beginner, but I would say those are a really great place to start. I think um, it's very cool to hear that you are going to, in the book, kind of wrap up some of the ML things that the reader will build into a little Phoenix app and kind of give them a taste of what it's like to work with machine learning in the Elixir ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you mentioned you've been working with some teams and some companies that are trying to integrate, let's say Bumblebee. What are some of the ways that just kind of keeping it all in Elixir has, that you've seen benefit teams um, and benefit what they're trying to build with machine learning? Yeah, so one thing I've seen is it really helps, uh, like if you have a smaller team and maybe you're, you're, you're tight on budget, um, you don't necessarily have to go and, and hire like a machine learning expert, like a data scientist. Um, for people that are already familiar with Elixir and are kind of like trying to, to build an end-to-end -end machine learning application, um, it's really, really helpful because you don't have to, to reach outside the stack per se. So you don't have to do a lot of context switching. 
Um, there's also like an infrastructure saving there. So you don't necessarily have to spin up like another, you know, microservice. Um, a lot of the, the models you can just, for example, deploy like directly in a, in a, in a free tier fly, uh, fly.io of like uh, node or whatever it's called. Um, so there's a lot of like cost saving there. And then um, I think like Bumblebee, for example. So a lot of the libraries we've, we've released have, I would say increasingly lowered the barrier to entry for the beginner machine learning programmer. So like we started with NX and you kind of had to be really familiar with machine learning and numerical computing already to get started because NX is just the building blocks. There's really no abstractions that make it easier for you, the programmer to, to write things like all of the guardrails are off and you can do whatever you want. And you can also make a ton of mistakes. Um, Axon kind of adds some guardrails specific for deep learning, but you still have to know quite a bit about deep learning to get involved. And then Bumblebee is just like, hey, I have you know this model and I wanna do uh, say text generation and it's two lines of code. And next thing you know, you have a model that generates text. Or um, one of the recent things that uh, Jonathan Quasco just introduced is a conversational serving. So in two lines of code, you can write a chat bot. Um, and so, that's kind of been one of the, the more exciting things about the watching these projects develop is we've, I would say, increasingly lowered the barrier to entry, which is awesome because that obviously gets more people motivated to get involved. Um, yeah, I would say the biggest benefit of keeping it on Elixir is, uh, one, you get to work in a language that you like. Uh, two, you don't have to, to reach outside for some additional Python expertise. Um, and then three, there's the, the infrastructure saving. So it seems like there's almost there's almost three families of languages out there, right? So one family of languages makes it convenient to do research in something like machine learning, right? So that's that's where some of the tooling in, in Python is aimed for, but really it's the R's and the Julia's and things like that. And then it seems like there are languages that are focused on the general purpose side of things, right? So um, languages like Python that make it easy to reason about how machine learning models work, right? And then it seems like there's this, this big black hole in the area of languages that bring together really highly consumable machine language and highly consumable things like fault tolerance and, and um and then the individual problem space that you're working on, right? So whether it's the web or whether it's um, embeddable systems or things like that. And it seems like that there's a there's a slot there for something like Elixir and something like Axon that seems pretty compelling to me. But I I don't know if I'm if I'm out of nowhere here or if if that's if that's interesting. No, definitely there is a ton, like even. Uh, there's a ton of unexplored areas of, of the language, I would say, that like we haven't necessarily touched with Axon. So like a lot of OTP concepts like distribution and um, some of the other cool things out there, like I'm very interested in, I don't know if Jose thinks it's a very good idea, but I'm very interested in sort of marrying like uh, Erlang's native distribution uh, with some of the, the NVIDIA, uh, you know, distributed programming models they have with like programming across clusters of GPUs. Um, I think there's some interesting things to explore there. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting, like researchy academic type things we could explore that, uh, you know, just getting more people involved in the ecosystem would be a big help with. And um, yeah, one of the things that is, has been, I would say, 
uh, nice is to see like people academically getting involved and so, or academically getting involved. So, you know, like we have students and stuff that want to contribute and mentoring students uh, through whatever research projects they're doing, uh, whether it be like a thesis or something else, or if it's just getting them involved in, in you know, committing to the open source uh, projects we have. Um, that's been really nice to have people like that who want to push the community forward. Um, and so they take time for themselves basically to, to, to do that. I think this is, um, it's a theme that comes up a lot when we talk about the direction that some of the Elixir community and frameworks and libraries have taken in recent years, starting with nerves. I think it's very much reflected in live view this idea that we're giving people tools, we're giving Elixir developers tools to build the kind of things that you used to need a lot more than just like basic programming knowledge to do. Uh, you know, like Stephen was saying earlier with nerves, it's now you can, you know, do hardware things and all you need to do is know enough Elixir. With LiveView, you can build these really beautiful, super interactive, uh, like single page apps basically without really being a JavaScript developer. And now you can have machine learning without actually, you know, necessarily having that in-depth background that prevented that barrier to entry uh, or that created that barrier to entry for many of us that don't necessarily have that kind of academic, let's say background in ML or even in like mathematics. So I'm curious, where do you see this taking the Elixir community overall? as these tools that you all are building are becoming more mature um, and as everybody is absolutely buzzing about you know AI and ML in a way that is I think still kind of new. Yeah so I appreciate you bringing up the live view example with JavaScript because actually part of the reason I hated uh, web development early on was because like I could not get used to, yeah. to JavaScript and I Same. have actually found myself working uh, more in live view i ended up buying the programming phoenix live view book by you and bruce hey. so um, it was a, it's a great book too by the way new um, edition coming soon it's very out of date but yes continue um so i've gotten pretty I, I would say involved in live view and it has been really nice that i don't have to write like any javascript so that's been that's been very nice for me uh getting involved there um where i would say the community is going with with all this obviously ai and machine learning are uh huge right now right you can't go on twitter or hacker news or anything like that without seeing someone mention chat gpt um and to be honest i'm not you know i'm i'm not quite sure where the community's going to end up going i think like one of the things that's a little bit worrisome to me is is sort of the like centralization of models like everyone now it seems like oh let's just call it to the open ai api and uh, make things happen with ChatGPT, and I don't necessarily know if that's a very good direction for the community to go. I hope you know open source ends up winning out, um, and and you know projects like Hugging Face, which uh, Hugging Face has been amazing to the you know Elixir community and the open source community in general, um, with how they kind of helped evangelize the Bumblebee project, and uh, that was really surprising to me to see them sort of accept Bumblebee into the the ecosystem and uh, and embrace it in the way that they did. So that was awesome to see. Um, yeah, I think there's there's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how things develop over the the next few years. Um, one of the things that I think, or I know that uh, some of the people that I've talked to in the community are focused on, is trying to uh, get Elixir more involved in academic communities. So I mentioned, you know, there's just people writing theses and stuff like that out there. Um, Brian Cartarell, for example, is really trying to like evangelize Elixir. 
uh, to some different universities in the United States to see if we can get some people teaching Elixir because part of the reason Python as an ecosystem is massive is because it's one of the languages that I would say majority of uh, people in universities learn. It's like everyone's first language and then, you know, you get into it and you stick to it and that's just kind of how it is. And so um, I think that's that's sort of a good angle for him to take is to try to identify some universities that might be interested in teaching Elixir and evangelizing the language and then um, you get people sort of involved in that way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also want to also want to introduce the idea that some of this is is basically building, talking about the kind of the connection to the Elixir language and the machine the machine learning space. But other parts of this are bringing machine learning to where the data is at and where the capability is to process and store, and manipulate and use kind of um, big swaths of data. There's there's a reason that that Erlang was um, was a language that we settled on for messaging traffic, for example. And you can imagine having all of that data in a place where we could actually do something with it. Uh, it's that's that's very exciting to me. Yeah, I think there's a big opportunity for uh, like data processing so like explore the, the the way that project has come together I, I think um is very interesting being able to do all of that sort of data manipulation natively in elixir um and combining with that with things like broadway and some of the other strengths of the language i think that's very interesting um yeah i think also like embedded as a use case is huge being able to do on device machine learning uh without having to call out to you know some cloud deployment is a really big opportunity in the ecosystem because in a lot of the places I'm sure nerves is used, like you don't really have the, maybe the, the uh, latency uh, to, to, or you don't necessarily have the ability to wait for a call out to a large model in the cloud. Uh, you need to process the data quickly. You can't reach out. Maybe it's not an interconnected internet connected device. Um, so I think that's a pretty big opportunity as well. I have one question that might not be a popular one. Uh, so it's not, what can we do? But the question is, what should we do, maybe? So from an ethical standpoint, are there problems that you want to kind of stay away from or be careful about? Or are there ways that we want to encourage the Elixir community to do things that are not just smart, but wise? For example, are there any things, any any kinds of training wheels that we can provide that we've we've learned from other problem spaces, like for example, providing training data with with the with the role that we want to see rather than the world that is, or something like that. Are, are are there any things that we could do to encourage the community to be wise with the applications of of this this beautiful technology? Yeah, I think there are always some some things to consider when getting involved in in any project from like an ethical standpoint. I'm not necessarily like an AI uh, doomerous person. I don't necessarily believe in the the uh, promise that AI is going to kill us all and uh, whatever. Um, I also don't necessarily think we're very close to artificial general intelligence. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily know if that matters that much because I do think we're at a point now where um, there are a lot of applications of AI that don't necessarily need artificial general intelligence to, to be successful. Um, that being said, um, I think there's a lot of work out of like a research lab called Anthropic AI on uh, how do you align, you know, 
it's it's basically an alignment problem. What is what is the alignment between like a humans' goals and ethics, et cetera, and uh, you know these large language models? And they have a, in a paper I'm, I'm like going through right now called Constitutional uh, AI, basically, where they're trying to give a large language models a, a constitution, basically, of, of principles they want it to abide by. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting. Um, I would say, you know, there are a ton of really, really good applications of AI, but there's also an equal amount of horrible applications for artificial intelligence. And so um, it really just is a matter of what your perspective and, you know, your your own ethical framework is. And I think you should be consider applying that when you are going through and, and deciding to to make some application built on artificial intelligence. Yeah, and, and as as we write about those types of things, we can encourage our our authors to to say those things when we put on conferences. We can, um, you know, so rather than taking the doomerist, uh, let's let's people how, let's teach people how to behave in the right way. Um, I, I love what you said about that. I just want to call out one thing that I heard that was really really cool, um, and it's something we hear a lot about and how we get people into the community. Um, you know, Bruce wrote seven languages and had an inspiration on Jose messing around, like thinking about writing a language. Uh, you read a Quora pro post and we're like, yeah, sure. I should check this Elixir thing out. And then Jose sees your book and is like, oh, we need to do this machine learning thing. Just sort of like a appealing to the audience. If you're thinking about writing a thing or recording a thing or giving a talk, it's important. It makes a huge difference in how we grow the ecosystem, how we get people excited about the things that we're working on. So you're thinking about writing it, speaking it, recording it, telling someone about it, do it. I, I absolutely cannot echo that more. I thank you for that PSA. Um, I would love for all of our listeners to take that to heart. And I want to see, you know, blog posts and book proposals and conference talks from all of them. And um I'll remind our listeners that if you do have a book idea and you think it might be a good fit for Prague Prague, or you think you could have a book idea in the future and you want to talk to somebody about it, I would love to talk to you about it. And you should find me on Twitter and send me a message and we can do exactly that. Uh, and on that note, I would like to thank you, Sean, so much for joining us. This has been uh, a fairly thrilling and whirlwind conversation. I had no idea that you just kind of got a little bit interested in this because of one class that you took in college and you are you know, a big part of the reason why we have ML in Elixir today. I'm very excited to see where it's going. Uh, before we wrap up, are there any last thoughts you'd like to share? Any updates or news that you would like to share with our listeners? Um. I would just say, uh, hopefully, by the time this comes out, my book is out, and um, I really encourage people to, you know, go grab a copy and and give me feedback on it because I spent a lot of time on it, and I'm hoping that it, it you know, does a lot of good for the community. One of the reasons I'm looking forward to your book um, is I'm trying to learn uh, machine learning stuff now, kind of from scratch, and you know, I I didn't go to great schools, so like a lot of like mathy stuff is hurting my brain. So like, yeah, let alone, totally. I let never alone learned math. the math stuff, and then all the books are in Python. I'm reading the other Prague. Uh, Prague book by Paolo. He wrote the metaprogramming book in Ruby. Yeah. Um, so I'm reading that one. Yeah. yeah. So I'm reading yeah. that. And then I'm I'm trying to, I'm like, of course, I'm not going to do it in Python. I'm going to do it in NX and Axon. So I'm now, I'm translating something I don't know to something I don't know and bothering Bruce at all ungodly hours of the night. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> Am I just writing this thing? And then, so I'm really grateful to kind of like get it in a, in a language and sort of in a voice that I, I'm, will be easier to kind of transition into. 
and then I can focus on being a big math dummy later, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about, about the book. It's the second it goes up, you know, I got some prag proc connections. Somebody hook me up. I'll pay for it. <laughs> Come on. I think that that's sort of the hard thing is we all have sort of a teaching background. Uh, and like, that's one of the hard things about teaching hard things is like deciding what to leave out is really like as important as what you say. So it's like, let me just get you enough to kind of like get you to that next step so that we can turn around from a higher ground and be like, yeah, there's more stuff there, but we need this to take the step. Now we can look back and like fill in those holes. That's like super, and it's, it's hard, you know, being so when you're really good at something, it's kind of hard to identify what are the things that you can cut out because it's this sort of like gestalt understanding of something that just makes up the thing in your brain. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited to do it. And um, you have a, a, like I said, a captive machine learning dummy who will give you feedback and be like, what is <laughs> happening here? I don't know what's going on here. Um, have you ever read the book um, Made to Stick? That is, uh, it's by uh, Chip and I think their last name is Heath, but um, it's a, it's really, really good. It's, it's about like how to make things uh, stick, basically, how to make things sticky. Um, if you've ever read the book by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, uh, goodness um tipping point um yep. part of part of in his book he talked about like some of the things that cause uh contagions or viral like viral effects as things that are sticky and then in this book made to stick they they go and they like break down what makes something sticky it's actually like i think it helps a lot with with writing but one of the things they talk about in there is the curse of knowledge where mm. uh, there was like a study where you had someone uh, you had listeners and tappers and you give the tappers a song to tap uh, and then the listeners have to figure out what song it is so I would sit here and I would tap like the Star Spangled Banner and then you know the the tappers think basically they're like they ask the tappers beforehand you know what is the chances you think this person guesses the song that you're tapping uh, and as a tapper you have the knowledge of the song so you're like it's easy you can obviously hear Right. you know the tune that i'm tapping but the listeners don't have that same knowledge and so they you know did significantly worse than the, the the tappers anticipated because the tappers are sort of tainted by the knowledge that they already have um it's a very interesting perspective on how to do education because you as you're teaching someone to someone are always tainted by the knowledge that you have and you right. can't necessarily assume that you know whoever you're teaching has that same knowledge so it's a very interesting book i thought from a like psychological perspective on how to teach no, that's very cool yeah i'll definitely check it out um high levels of empathy and just being like oh wait i can yeah no that's 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 too inside baseball like a lot of times you just gotta be like oh that's oh, yeah. you know that's a little too much not everyone knows what autograd is for instance right like just to echo what sean said writing a book takes a lot of effort so um definitely support him in this endeavor and thanks for doing this in addition to everything else that you've done for the elixir community Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate it. Um, I also will be giving a virtual talk at ElixirConf EU. So uh, for those attending, I encourage you to hopefully come and sit in and, and see my talk. I would say it's a very interesting topic I'm going to be talking about. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I appreciate you all having me on. All right. Thank you again, Sean, for joining us. A couple shout outs and announcements that I'd like to make as we wrap up. We have got some conferences coming up that some of us are very involved in and very excited about. 
Uh, first up in May, on May 19th and 20th, we've got Gig City Elixir, which is happening in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, if that makes you think of Bruce, you would be right to do so because he is one of the forces behind this conference. It looks like you guys have got an absolutely great lineup uh, of speakers, a bunch of wonderful topics and a training, some trainings possibly happening the day before the conference. Anything you'd like to say about that, Bruce? Yeah, we've got a, a live view course. We're going to focus on components, on live view components. We'll put a link in the show notes. Please, please, please check it out. We also have the MPEX conference that is coming back to New York for the first time since the pandemic put a pause on things. Um, we are holding it in Brooklyn and Gowanus specifically for the first time ever. I'm very excited about it. Um, we try to keep the MPEX conference like kind of small and intimate feeling and very plugged into the nature and the community of the cities that they're in. So we've rented out, um, I believe a music venue in Brooklyn. We'll have some live music. We'll have, I think a photographer there. We might have some art going on. Uh, join us in June in New York. It's on my actual birthday, which I feel like I may have said before come and hang out with me on my birthday. Yeah, Bruce. This is one of the most influential conferences in conference families to me. One of the things they do is focus on hospitality and venue. So getting a sense of place is really uh, one of the things that they do the best. So shout out to that conference. If you've never been, take this opportunity to go. Thank you for that. Um, I would love to see some of our listeners there. And uh, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you again, Sean. Thank you, Bruce and Steven. We'll catch you guys next time on Beam Radio. That was great. Thank you so much. That was great. Oh, my God. That was amazing. I'm very excited about your book. I'm I, like speechless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is like, this is so good. <laughs>